If you'll grab your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. I will be reading from verses 22 through verse 40 today. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What, was, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of, the, of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Let's pray. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit that you will reveal your Son to us today as the bread of life. That we will come to know him as the eternal, life-giving bread. And that we will partake upon him, not in a casual way, but that we will truly commune with him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by talking about a very odd thing that John throws into this opening sequence. Just like he's done before, he uses a timestamp to let us know that we are entering into a new section. That the last section has ended. The last section where he very plainly, rudimentally, and succinctly tells the account of Jesus walking on water. The account where Jesus sent the disciples out onto the lake, into a storm, and was content 
to walk on by them, to allow them to continue to struggle on in their flesh. The account where when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out, and then he told them, It is I, do not fear. It was written in this manner because there was only one thing that John wanted to highlight. Not the storm, and not even Jesus walking on water. He desired us to focus in on what it was that he, Jesus, said to the disciples. The only reason that they should not have been afraid. The only reason why they should never be afraid. Or us either. Jesus is the I am that I am. This point has been made, and now John is taking us to the next vignette that pulls from and is built off, built off of not only the last one, but also the feeding of the 5,000, which started this t- section of Scripture. In this sequence, he moves the focus from Jesus and the disciples back across the lake to the crowd that had been fed the day before, the crowd that Jesus had dismissed, the crowd that wanted to crown him as king, the crowd that woke up looking for him. That's not the odd thing that I want to talk about. The odd thing is found at the end of verse 23, a verse where John is telling us about the manner in which the crowd, or at least part of them, got to the other side of the lake. A verse which begins by telling where the boats picked up that crowd, where they had eaten the bread, At the end of that verse, John tacks on, after the Lord had given thanks. This is a throwback to verse 11, which reads, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. The strange thing that John throws into this verse concerning what Jesus did before he passed out the bread to the crowd. He had given thanks. Why is this strange, you may ask? After all, shouldn't we all give thanks before we eat? Isn't that the Christian thing to do? It is. But it's the why of it that John wanted to highlight. The fact that he mentions Jesus giving thanks again. Here where it's not needed and not really even relevant to the boats picking up the people, is given to spotlight a fact that we and they may have missed. Jesus held up the loaves and fishes, and after giving thanks to the Father, His Father, He multiplied them to feed more than 10,000 people. What He, Jesus, was desiring these people to see. What he desired them to be impressed with was his Father, the one who he thanked for providing all things, the one who had sent him, and the one who he desired to bring glory to in every aspect of his life. He was acknowledging that the miracle that was about to take place only happened because of the Father. John didn't want us to miss this fact either, 
This is why he throws this little off-the-wall comment in where it's not needed to cause us to wonder, why did he put that there? Cause us to stop and ask ourselves, why? Here in this account is John bringing up Jesus giving thanks to his Father. There's also a remarkable word play going on within this little section. Very seldom does John refer to Jesus as Lord, but he does so here, after the Lord had given thanks. We, in our minds, understand what he means here. We don't think it odd that he calls Jesus Lord. After all, he is. But that he does so here is given to help us understand the reality of who Jesus is, in contrast to who the crowd thought that he was. John continued that thought beginning in verse 24 with, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, we can very often move from speaking the name of Christ, Jesus, and then use his title to mean the very, next the, mean the very same thing in the next sentence. We can say, the Lord saved me, Jesus saves. But this is not what John was intending, though. He knew that Jesus was Lord, and he knew him personally enough to call him by name. But what he's intending for us to see here is that the crowd did not recognize that it was the Lord who was praying to his Father, that it was the Lord who was healing their sick, teaching and guiding them. They only knew him as Jesus. There is a difference, and that difference has life and death consequences. You may also think it strange, but Jesus giving thanks to his Father is not a common thing found within the Gospels. I'm not saying or even implying that Jesus didn't give thanks regularly. I'm confident that he did. I'm saying that none of the Gospel writers found it necessary to add this into their writings. It was that common and expected. So when it is added, when it is stated, we should sit up and take notice. John wanted to highlight here that it was only through the provision of the Father that these people had eaten. It was a miracle that they had eaten. A miracle that proved that God the Father and God the Son were one. Here is how this applies to us each and every day. We will all eat today and eat well Eat at least once, and more than that if we so desire. And being Christian, we will more often than not stop and pray before doing so. But do we really mean it? Or are we doing that which Jesus told his disciples not to do? Praying in vain repetition. Good food, good drink, good God, let's eat. Or do we stop and recognize that what we're about to do in eating is a miracle. God has provided for us again. He has done this. But we are so spoiled that we don't even stop to consider that this is truth. After all, in our thinking, we work for the money that bought those groceries 
those groceries that were at the market, they didn't appear magically. This is common. It's every day. But it is a miracle. A miracle that is so common that we take it for granted. It doesn't have to be this way. The shortages that have happened in the last few months prove this to be true. God can, as He desires, stop all of this from being common. Stop being so kind and gracious and stop allowing us to be so spoiled that we do not stop and thank Him for providing for us miraculously, divinely, and abundantly. John knew this to be true. He desired us not to separate anything from the Father, removing glory due His name. This was the desire of Jesus as well. Listen to the brother of Jesus, James, in chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Every good and perfect gift would include Jesus himself, which is why this little statement was added here. To link Christ with the Father, to link his works with the Father, to ensure that we never forget that the sole purpose of the life of Christ was to glorify his Father. Now back to our verses. Once the crowd made it to the other side of the lake, they quickly found Jesus which is where verse 25 picks up. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They had not seen him walk on water. No one was asking about how he had gotten here, but the fact that he had gotten there, that there were no boats missing and no extra boats at the shore, didn't get past them. And Jesus answered them, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. I'm sorry, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus didn't answer their question. He has a habit of doing this, not answering polite questions that are not really what's being asked. He did this to Nicodemus in chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to him with flattering words, trying to ascertain who he was. He responded with that very meaningful, truly, truly. And just like in this verse, he then cuts to the chase, cuts through all the niceties and right to the crux of the problem. There, he had said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In that conversation, he revealed himself as the one who had come down from heaven, the Son of Man, the one that whoever believes in may have eternal life. He did the same thing in his conversation with the woman at the well. When when she had tried deflecting the conversation from the eternal back to the temporal, there he had challenged her with what would have been completely unknowable to anyone outside of her close family circle when he had told her, go call your husband. There too, he was cutting to the chase 
cutting through all the pleasant conversation, through all the periphery, and right to the main point that he wanted to make and she needed to hear. And there, in that conversation, he once again revealed himself as the one that could give her eternal life. He revealed himself as the living water. Now you may wonder why Jesus didn't just tell the crowd that he had walked on over last night. That would have confused them, would have blown their minds. But they would not have believed him if he had told them. And more importantly, Jesus did not perform to amuse or astound. Him walking on water was a lesson that he had taught his disciples. It was not intended for public amusement. But his answer to this crowd was a challenge to them, asking why they were clamoring after him. They had seen his signs, his miracles, but they had missed the meaning of the signs, of the miracles. There is a difference between seeing and understanding. They had enjoyed the benefit of the bread and fish. That was a cool miracle. They had been amazed at the healing of the sick. That was entertaining. But for them, these were just parlor tricks, check marks in qualifying Jesus as their king. He knew that they would be scandalized with the baptism that he would soon endure at their hands. He knew that they enjoyed the benefits of the physical feast that he was providing. They wanted to enter into that feast, but they had no stomach for the spiritual. They had no taste for self-denial. He knew that when they found out that to be his, that they would have to enter into his sufferings, that they would have I'm sorry, that they would shrink from pricking up their cross and following this king into his kingdom. A point he makes in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. The response by Jesus is odd in one sense. No one had been talking about work. No one had brought up work. They had asked him when he had gotten there. But in reality, they really wanted to know how he had gotten there. Had he done another miracle and they missed it? It's then that he challenges why they have traveled across the lake to find him. Not because they desired to submit to him, but because he was the best show in town. He was the in Thing at that moment. He was where all the cool people were hanging out. It was then that he brings up work. Who's talking about work? What does work have anything to do with why we're here? But the reality is, is that they thought that they were saved by works. They thought that they could earn their way into heaven. That they could, in fact, keep the law. Works was a way of life for them. They counted the steps that they walked on every Sabbath. 
works. They were precise in weighing out their offerings. Works. They were exact in how they performed their religious duties, and they counted all these as pluses in their get-into-heaven card. Their religious traditions taught that the work of God was found in the law, in the Torah. It was in keeping these things. But that doesn't describe us. We no longer are, by and large, a religious people. We no longer hold any religion as having any value. And in fact, we, by and large, as a people, think so little of God that if we think of Him at all, we make Him fit our mold of what and who He should be. For this reason, this verse really doesn't apply to us. Or does it? See, I've at times talked with people who are just plain unhappy in their lives. When I asked them what they do for a living and if they like it, they usually say that it wasn't what they desired to do in life. But it put food on the table. They are, to borrow a phrase, working for a living. Working to to put food on the table is a noble thing to do but very often it leads to working for the weekend, working for the next three-day weekend, working for the next vacation, working for that car, that toy. All of these things are fleeting, empty. All of these things are food that perishes very quickly. If this is you, am I counseling you to quit your job and follow your dreams, your passions? No. I am echoing the truth that Jesus said. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Stop working for those things. You need a reality check. That person who meets you at the time clock, that signs your paycheck, that gives you a hard time, 